Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. It is now my pleasure to introduce our afternoon uh, essay main speaker. Our friend in recovery comes from us from the Palm Desert area. He attended his first essay meeting in the year 2000 up in Seattle and has continued to work his program and has stayed committed to being of service along his recovery journey. He has been married for 46 years and has four sons and ten grandchildren. What a blessing that is. Please join me in giving Richard M. a warm welcome. Good afternoon. My name is Dick, and I'm a recovering sexaholic. I was not always a sex addict, but I'm going to tell you today how I became one, and most importantly, what I discovered was a secret to recovery from sexual addiction. I'm going to split my life up into four sections. The first section is called the Age of Innocence. The second section is the Age of Sexual Curiosity. The third section is the Age of Sexual Experimentation. And the fourth age is the Age of Sexual Recovery. The Age of Innocence is probably up to the age of five. You know, I'm a human being, and above all, I'm a sexual being. And somewhere in that first five years, I became acquainted, really not with any understanding of it, of my sexuality. And somewhere in there, I began to receive messages, overtly and covertly, about how to express that sexuality. I found out certain things that I was attracted to, and certain people, certain things that, uh, you know, I don't know why I... Don't know, I didn't know what was happening. It seemed like, I guess we'd call it now getting turned on or being aroused. Uh, I remember the first time that I ever had a, um, erection. That was before I was around five years old and I had no idea what was going on. But I noticed that it was one of those good feelings. About this time too, at, I, I grew up in the 50s, and I've covered seven decades so far. 
And I've seen a lot of changes. I've seen a lot of changes in the, you know, so-called sexual revolution. And uh, at that time, I began to morph into the second age of sexual curiosity. That was between 6 and 12, I would say. And I ran across all kinds of, uh, you know, certain types of literature. You know, that filthy rag, the Sears Roebuck catalog. Um, you know, that was the poor man's or poor boy's sex magazine. And uh, I remember some of my friends and I getting together and, you know, we thought it was so funny to get together and giggle over all those pages of all those ladies in their, you know, underwear. And uh, we thought that was pretty funny, but... I never suffered any abuse as a child, not sexual, not physical. In fact, I guess you'd have to say my first several years in SA, I didn't really think I really fit in because I didn't have it as bad as a lot of these people did. I had an Aussie and Harriet upbringing. My folks were very good parents. They were kind. They were affectionate to all of us children. They all tried to teach all four of us or treat all four of us very evenly and even-handedly. And yet, subtly and steadily, I began to notice some changes in my behavior, but I became very secretive about it because I was somehow I had the shame about it, sort of like what happened in the Garden of Eden when, how did you know you were naked? You know, how did I know I shouldn't be thinking this or feeling this? Then this goes into the age of uh, sexual experimentation. This is from my teens to up to about 2010. Now, I came into discovery in about January of 2000. So this is already 10 years into being associated with Sexaholics Anonymous. But my experimentation in sex continue all through that area and it covered a wide array of things a lot of things that you know uh, I've shared in first steps that I've given several times in the last 18 years one of them was cross-dressing and that was something that I don't even have a clue how I ever got into that it's just that something I found was uh, and I thought geez just like a lot of uh, sex addicts that's I'm the only one and I really felt weird I thought that was strange and uh, it was an embarrassing thing to even think about. I had never wanted to get caught doing it. And I did it just very, very mildly, you know. Tried on my mom's different clothing at different times. I have no idea why I did it. And over the years, I have tried to figure out why I did it, and I gave up. Because I don't think it even matters. All that matters now is recovery from sexual addiction. But I, another thing that was unusual about me, too... When I got married at the age of 24, I was a virgin. Now, remember I told you I grew up in the 50s and 60s. I always joke when my wife's there, she doesn't necessarily like it, that when other people, I tell them, we're short-haired hippies. You know, we grew up in all that mess. I went to college, a major university. I was in a fraternity. And I've never taken a drug, never smoked pot. Oh, I take that back. I, I did drink alcohol, but that was accepted. And 
What I found about alcohol was it was not a drug for me in the sense that it, I was addicted to it or could become addicted to it, but it sure did lower my inhibitions. And I used it that way, you know, to be more comfortable around girls and women. About, I would say, 19... I mentioned the cross-dressing. I only did that sporadically when I was a kid. And then when I got to uh, out of high school, I never did it again until about 1995 or 6. And again, it was kind of an offshoot of what of looking at porn. Now, this is something I want to talk about is pornography. I don't know how many of you know it, but there's actually a 12-step program just for Internet porn. It's the crack cocaine of porn. And I started out with, you know, just uh, either stealing or stumbling across, you know, magazines and books and literature and stuff. But eventually, over the years, you know, the computer age and digital age, and now, boom, right there on a person's phone or on the computer. And... I have a lot of friends who have recovered from drug addiction, from methamphetamine, from cocaine, from crack. And I hear they describe the symptoms of it. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing because it's exactly the symptoms I had watching pornography on the Internet. So, you know how they say uh, one drink is too many and a thousand drinks are never enough. One image is too much. And 10,000, 20,000. I stopped counting. I'd be up all night. I'd see the sun come up and the sun go down and the sun come up again. I hadn't even stopped to eat or drink. I may have gone to the bathroom. I'm not sure. I don't remember. But that's how addictive it was to me. I'm not even sure. I just gradually slid into it over time. Well... In 2000, my wife, one of the things I did is, in the end of 1999, I got an apartment right only four blocks from where we lived. It was a basement apartment in this lady's home. She was trying to, you know, help pay the mortgage. And uh, so I would go there and they'd cross-dress. And most of the time, here's another thing, too. I used to hear another reason I was different from all the other sex addicts because Everybody seemed to talk about this thing called chronic masturbation. And I didn't even know what chronic meant, so I went to the dictionary to look it up, and I thought, geez, they're talking like that's not good. (laughs) (laughs) And I was in my mind thinking, I wish I could figure out how to do that. Because here's what I do. My ideal situation was to get in some kind of circumstances where I could really get that high and keep it there as long as I could, and I didn't want to masturbate because that was the end of it, and I knew what happened. <sighs> yeah, if, I, if I'd been cross-dressing, I'd get rid of all that stuff and hide it, and I felt just shame and disgust with myself. But like with any addiction, that was only temporary. And once again, um, you know, my sex drive would eventually come back, and the cycle would start all over again. Well, anyway, I had this apartment, and, of course, I paid cash because I didn't want my wife to know about it. 
But I got a receipt from the lady. What, what, what would I get a receipt from the lady who was paying cash? I said, and I, don't, I didn't remember. I'd stuck it in my briefcase. My briefcase on my desk. My wife was suspicious because she'd caught me uh, looking at porn before on the uh, computer. And she went through my briefcase and she found it. And uh, this is one of the first times of many times for several years when the light flashed on in the middle of the night and she came in there and says, what are you not telling me? And just woke out of a deep sleep, you know, and I was shocked. And I says, well, I'm not. And, I, and after a few seconds, I figured out what she was talking about. Well, anyway, we went out that night, not on a date, but... You know, we went out, left the, we left the house because we still had one son living at home, drove to a nearby mall, sat there, and I told her everything that I could. I pretty much spilled the beans. And she, of course, you can talk to her about her story. But what I will say is that, uh, you know, that we, she had found a magazine that had on the back of it, it was not a sex magazine, but a magazine that had articles in it about sexual addiction. And on the back it had information about Sexologics Anonymous of how to get in contact. She did that. And then uh, the next night we went to a meeting. At that time we lived up in the Pacific Northwest. And here's an interesting story that I think is very powerful and something to keep in mind. We both went to the, our first meeting, her SNN first meeting, my SA first meeting, on the same night, in the same church building, we went down the same hall. We didn't see anybody there. I think we might have been a little bit late. We're getting close to the starting time. I turned into a meeting place of about 40 or 50 people in SA. She went down the hall to a meeting. How many people were there? You don't think it's important to go to a meeting and remember what Bill W. and Roy K. echoed? The reason for a meeting is for the newcomer. Not even for yourself, primarily. One other person was there. A young woman, I not even my wife's age, had two little baby girls, one about two, one about four. Her husband was a raging sexaholic. She didn't even know where he was that night. And she had to get a babysitter, which she basically couldn't afford. She was there. Now, that night, my wife and I talked about what went on in our meetings later. I mean, what the gist of it was, what we were told. And we heard the same thing. There was a difference, though. She did. I did not. I was there because I wanted to make her happy. wanted to get off her back. But I wasn't really ready to get involved. I want to say right here, I can't thank my wife enough for having that courage to work this program when I didn't. That can't be easy. I know it's not easy for guys when their wife isn't working the program, but I, and they always say, well, geez, I haven't gone to a prostitute in six months. Why can't she get off my back? And I tell them, boy, you had, you got to get to the Unity Conference and listen to the Essanons and you'll find out what's going on. That's what a lot of essays, including myself, have difficulty comprehending of the actual harmful effects of our behavior, which we kind of take very lightly until we get serious about recovery. My first unity conference was in 2001. <clears throat> My second unity conference was in 2011. Huh? Well, there's, there's a gap. 
What happened? Oh, I came to meetings, you know. I'm still in the mood of keeping my wife off my back or in the dark. That's more like it. You know, I wasn't ready to let everything go. Always holding on to something. Oh, I'd give up this, give up that, but just never said, I'm all in. Well, my wife, (laughs) about 2010, got another big shock, which turned into a big shock to me, another one of those middle-of-the-night things. Lights flash on. What aren't you telling me? What are you keeping from me? And, of course, I told her the truth, but not the whole truth and nothing but the truth just to see how she react. And all this did was harm me and her worse because I just got into that lying, dishonest mentality where I was actually believing my own lies and I was really, really good at lying. I was very good at convincing her. And then I would have these great moments of regret and sorrow that I, what I was keeping from her and that I was not being faithful to her because I knew it was wrong in those few moments of sanity. Well, she set some boundaries this time. She learned about boundaries, and I was about to learn about them. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the two things that she said she required, the only two things, the only two things that a sex addict does not want to hear Number one, honesty. And she said 100% honesty. Many of you here heard me say before, that's an adjective. 100% is an adjective. Take away the 100%. I'm either honest or I'm dishonest. I'm not partially honest, or sometimes I'm honest. I'm honest most of the time. Well, what's that mean? And the second thing was she wanted a recovering husband. That's not what I wanted to hear, but it's what I knew I had to hear. Well, this is what I did. I did what my wife did ten years before. I got all in. I actually did. There's a mentor of mine in this program, and he's in in this room right now. I heard him one time answer the question. I was overhearing him in a conversation. Somebody with a newcomer says, well, you know, I'm afraid, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give up in this program, you know, and what could, what would guarantee that I'd quit and not make it? And this is what, uh, my mentor, the long timer in this program said. Well, number one, don't get a sponsor. Number two, don't work the steps. Number three, don't go to meetings. Not meeting. Not occasionally drop in, say hi to the boys. Meetings. And the fourth thing was don't go to conferences. Okay, that's kind of the negative take on it. What would be the other thing? Get a sponsor. Work the steps. No whining and complaining. Just do what they say. Don't sit in judgment of your sponsor. You know, all that's included in that. Work the steps, go to meetings, as many as you can, and go to conferences. Basically, in a nutshell, do whatever it takes. One of the things I began my recovery is when I started doing that, 
And I got through the 12 steps when I was serious about it in less than 12 months. I met with my sponsor every week like he, we agreed to. And I found out what Bill W. had mentioned and I'd read about many years before in the big book, um, that once we get through the 12 steps, then we'll understand how to work the program. It's a program of 12 steps, not my program of, oh, that step, that, that's pretty good, I like that one. You know, or like we just heard, you know, doing it our way. And another thing he taught me was to try to live a simpler life. He called it a life of mediocrity. Now, that sounds funny to say that, but you know, how do, how do I react as an addict? I'm really up there, high in my addiction, or way down here, depression and woe is me. There's no Mr. In-Between. No balance, no sense of stability. And one of the sayings that I use now that really helps me every day is I say, when I, when I live in the present, I'm in God's presence. I found that God, I found a new realization of God, a, a big, huge step in my spiritual growth over the years, when I found that God does not exist in the illusory worlds of the past or the future. Those are fantasy worlds. And my addiction was all about living in a fantasy and not being able to, or willing to deal with reality, with the responsibilities life of growing up and acting like a man. You know, I would joke around with everybody else in college and all my fraternity buddies, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, here's what real men do. We go out and we gangbang some sorority or we go, you know, see how many times we can get laid in the week over the weekend, how much beer we can drink. The sponsor told me when he began with me, and I had been going about three years with sobriety. This is at 2010, about, this would have been about 2013. And I had a slip where my wife and I talked about it. And my wife is pretty black and white about what a slip is. And she told me that she didn't really consider it a slip. But my sponsor says, this is what we need to do, Dick. You ever wonder what a slip is or when you're slipping? This is what he said to me. Don't look where I fell. Rather, where and when I started slipping. Oh, I've been going to six, seven meetings a week. Five would probably be just fine. Oh, I read 15 minutes a day. Oh, I missed a day. Oh, not gonna. Oh, I missed another day. I missed another day. I missed a meeting. Oh, I don't need to go to that many meetings. My sponsor said call him every day. I've been calling about every other day. That's pretty good. In other words, I'm transitioning or falling back into my program instead of the program. Well, that made me really think about it because I didn't want to slip. I really didn't. I've got a whole drawer full of chips. One year, two year, three year, four year, five year, you know, different times, but not in a row. I mean, it was a year here, maybe two years or three. And I have all that in between time because I really wasn't really giving myself to the program. Well, I finally stopped sitting on the sidelines and did what my wife had done way back in 2000. I got all in. Big change came over me. I had one of those spiritual awakenings. This is what I do to measure my daily recovery with some key reminders that mean, are meaningful to me that keep me on the straight and narrow, help keep me on the straight and narrow. Number one, I arise when I wake up, as soon as I'm 
semi-lucid, I always try to say every morning the first thing, I arise, O God, to do your will. Number two, during the day when I find myself agitated or doubtful, I pause. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Does that seem like an eternity to you? <laughs> That's a pause. My mom used to always tell me that as a kid. Hey, when you're upset about something, take a big deep breath and count to ten. I pause and ask God or my wife or my sponsor, those two are not the same, by the way, for the next right thought or action. Number three, whenever I'm disturbed, I'm often disturbed. I am disturbed. (laughs) Something is wrong with me. Number four, if I can't say anything nice, my mom used to always say, if you can't say anything nice about somebody, don't say anything at all. I put my twist on it. If I can't say anything nice about myself, I don't say anything at all. Number five, the only requirement for membership in this elite organization is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. I want to read real briefly from this pamphlet, Why Stop Lusting. I recommend SNONs and essays get this and read it. From the earliest days of my illness, I thought lust was my friend. I used it for many reasons, entertainment, as a refuge from pain, or to escape dealing with problems. Somewhere along the way, I realized that lust had become a bigger problem than the problems I was trying to avoid. And here's the hope part of it. Progressive victory over lust is possible. I call on the God of my understanding for help. I lean on the fellowship for support, and I take the steps of SA to recover. Number six, God loves me just the way I am, and there's room for improvement. And number seven, I was reminded of this today, so I added it in. This is a great one for me. No matter how far down the scale my experience has taken me, I know, or no matter how far down the scale I've gone, I know that my experience can be a benefit to others. Yeah, how can a guy that uh, had several full-ride scholarship offers to major universities, including one of the major uh, military academies or uh service academies. How is a guy that was football captain, baseball captain, inspirational leader, all-American guy, everybody on the outside? Remember, I, I used to think I'd see other what people look like on the outside, just like they did to me, but what was going on on the inside? See, sex is not my problem. It's never been my problem. And not even lust has been the real problem. All those are symptoms of me, the problem inside those character defects that I want God to remove from me. Have you figured out what the secret is yet? You've been given hints all along. You were given a hint by the previous speaker. At the conclusion of every SA meeting, every SNON meeting, every 12-step meeting I've ever been to in any kind of addiction, we're reminded of the secret. And I'm going to put my little slight change on it because it makes it more meaningful to me. 
Keep coming back. It works if I work it. We're supposed to talk in the I and the me, not the you, right? Why do we always say it works if you work it? It works if you work it, Tupper. You know, Eric, it works if you work it. It works if my wife works it. No, it works if I work it. Well, how about it? Are you all in? It's the end. Let's give Bernadine and Dick another hand. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.